The following is a podcast from Bell and Ran Entertainment. Hello, it's Craig Thompson. This is the Stratford Slice. My guest today has been described as a one-man philanthropic powerhouse. When you've spent your entire career in IT and finance and you're offered a huge promotion, what choice do you make? Well, when you're Bruce Whitaker, you cash your chips in and you move to the small town of Stratford. My guest today, Bruce Whitaker, welcome to the Stratford Slice. Oh, great to be here. I love, I'm going to use that as my title now, the powerhouse. Philanthropic <laughs> powerhouse. That's, that's, I'm going to have to change my cards. <laughs> what? brought you to Stratford? Why give up a, a lucrative career in tech and IT and, uh, and uh, you're not a, an old guy, you're middle-aged, so why, why cash in? Well, I think, you know, I was raised on a ranch, so I think that's sort of where it starts. And, um, you know, being a part of a community is a great thing where people know if you're happy or sad, you know, if you're alive or dead. Um, and since that time, I've lived in a lot of cities like Singapore and New York and London and, of course, Toronto and Vancouver. And, um, you know, you can, it's, there's anonymity being in a big place like that. And uh, it's, a, it's a bit of a lonely feeling. So I wanted to get back to, to my roots. So it was either to go back to the ranch and, uh, and to deliver um, calves in minus 40 degree weather in January, February. Or it was to come to Stratford and, and enjoy the restaurants and the, and the festival and all there is that Stratford offers. So it was a pretty easy choice. You were in Toronto at the time, and you'd obviously become familiar with Stratford. You've been here frequently. Is that the, that the case? No, infrequently. So we came, they had the hockey, was it hockey night in Canada? Hockey or day in Canada. Hockey day in Canada. So we came in a frigidly cold day in, in February for that and I fell in love um, with the city. Um, I just like the sense of, um, of people knowing each other and caring for one another. And um, we were just attracted to that. Um, and we came back and we decided this was gonna be the place. We looked throughout the United States and Canada and uh, we were very attracted to, to Stratford. Now, were you going to come to Stratford and just live a, a life of leisure or were you planning to be as busy as you are now? Um, I, I think I'm, I'm always going to be busy. You know, I've, I'm a busy person and, and I like to contribute in a lot of different ways. So I wasn't going to, no, I wasn't going to be sitting um, on the couch and waking up at 11 o'clock and then having something to eat and going, having an afternoon nap. Um, but you didn't, you didn't have a plan though, did you? Um, not really. You know, I think one of the things, we have three boys and all three of them have been adopted from very difficult lives. And uh, we were living in Parkdale in, um, in uh, Toronto. And it's a hard place to keep track of your kids um, in Toronto and make sure that they're doing well. And the other part was, uh, you know, when they say something hits you in the face and you, and you take action, well, it was a summer and we were living um, at that time in Parkdale, sort of in the middle of the city, and it was terribly polluted. And uh, I couldn't get my taste. So everything that I tasted, if I had a steak sandwich or if I had a, a Cheeto, they, they tasted the same, you know, just a very dull taste. So coming from a ranching background where the, the air is always quite crisp and clean, 
and then being confronted like this, it was very difficult for me to raise children in that sort of environment. So, so you turned down the big promotion, and did that come as a shock to your colleagues that I'm uh, leaving, or what? How did that come about? Well, was, I, I worked for. Um, I sort of started off with TD Bank, so I worked internationally with them, um, as well as in North Battleford, Saskatchewan. That's part of the internet. I managed a branch there, um, and then I worked in international banking with TD, and then I moved. They wanted me to move to Indonesia and um, and to Singapore, and that was the time. I don't know if you remember, but there was. Um, sort of the, not the caning, but the slapping of, of gay people um, at that time. And this is when I was coming out, and I didn't think Singapore or Indonesia would be the best place to come out in. Um, you know, I probably have to go back into the closet. So um, I reached out, uh, or I had another offer from Ernst & Young in New York. So I joined Ernst & Young in New York, and I consulted um, throughout the United States. And then uh, I got involved in a, in a technology company, which we sold um, to in Texas, um, so don't don't all of a sudden think of millions and billions of dollars. You know, we did half decently well, but not what we expected. But it, you know, it gave me enough money to have some freedom of choice, and um, I just wanted to get back to a simpler way of life and uh, and to really be able to taste my food and enjoy it, and to be able to talk to people and be attentive. Um, and that's why I, I came here. When you uh, came out of the closet, uh, Alberta is in your roots. What And Alberta is perceived as this kind of redneck uh, ranch country where you're from. Right. How did that go, uh, go over uh, with your people in Alberta, your family? How did that uh, come about? Well, I was late coming out. And, and really because of that reason, I was in my 30s when I knew when I was 10 that, that I was gay. So, um, you know, it was probably 23 years of, of hiding it, um, which is a really difficult uh, part of my life. And um, so I saw what was on the TV. So I didn't know anybody, anybody in gay. I don't think they have gay people in Alberta, or at least that's what I thought at the time. And, because, um, you know, and then I saw the parades of... The pride parades. Uh, yeah, and, yeah. I, and that, I did, that didn't really resonate with me um, to be on a, on a float. And so it was, a, it was a very focused image of what a gay person was and it, and it wasn't who I was. Yeah. So that prevented me from coming out. And I remember when I came out, um, I first came out to my sisters and of course they were, well not of course, but they were fine with it. And then um, I was going to tell my parents and I sent them a letter. And you know, part of it was that I was probably a little fearful of the response. But I think more importantly, I wanted them to have time to reflect on the letter and, um, and then talk to me. And I was in New York at the time. I mailed the letter. My sisters went to the mailbox and got the letter. They knew it was coming. They knew it was coming. Yeah. And they wanted to be there for my parents. So, so they showed up and they opened the letter. And my dad fooled me right away. And so I, I was uh, on probably the 30th story of, uh, of uh, an office building in New York. And I saw the, my parents' phone number come up. So I knew what it was about. And I didn't answer. Um, you know. And so it was, it was sort of interesting because you know, I was a little bit fearful. Um, so I let it go into voicemail. And uh, my mom came on and she said, Oh, I'm so glad you don't have cancer. Because when you start these letters, of course, you know, you start them with, oh, the worst thing has happened to me, you know, and this is a, you know, it's been such a difficult um, dilemma for me to face. And then so she said, um, no, oh, you don't have cancer, you're just gay, I'm so happy. 
<laughs> and then my dad's response was, you know, he's sort of a funny guy, and he said, as long as I can call you my happy son and not my gay son. So That's so, a compromise, right? Well, it was funny. And then I was working in Vancouver at the time the next two weeks, and I had them come out um, to see me. And I thought, well, what better way to sort of break the ice and take them to a comedy club? So we went to the comedy club, and I'll never forget it. We were sitting in the front row, and the comedian was bringing up gay jokes, you know, and some of them were very inappropriate, and it was very raw to me, obviously. And I said to my mom and dad, I turned to them, I said, we're leaving. And uh, my mom said, no, we can't leave. They're going to heckle us. We can, you know, we're right in the front row. So we had to sit through this whole routine of um it felt like every joke was about being gay and um so of course i had a, i had a conversation with the owner afterwards but that was uh, that was my coming out experience it was negative about being gay the neg- negative it was, a, it was yeah. negative yeah. Gay, yeah. gay jokes yeah wow yeah well negative and you know is i think one of them i don't really want to repeat them discriminatory well. one was more or less saying that you know i would love to be gay as long as i didn't you know yeah you know yeah. um didn't like sex that way. You know, it was yeah. just those sort of things. It wasn't, it was just um, questionable jokes. And of course, for me, no matter what it was, it was, it was difficult. Right. So not the best choice, Craig. So in Stratford, you have a, a partner and you're raising three teenage boys together. So tell me a little bit about your family situation. Yeah, so we, we Andrew's our son. We, um, we adopted him. Um, he's now 24, so we adopted him when he was seven, and he had been in um, eight families before he joined us at the age of seven. So he had a, a very difficult life, and we, we raised him in Parkdale, and then we decided to move out here, so he moved out with us. And then when we moved out here shortly the year after, um, Children's Aid Society approached us and said, um, you know, we have a disruption, and there's two brothers that were bonded to a family but the um, the family at the last minute decided against the adoption. So they said in July, would you take these two brothers? And I wasn't really necessarily looking to for more children. Um, but Andrew, our eldest, wrote us a letter on how important it was to give an opportunity for, for children and, and how it has changed his life and that he thought it would be a really wonderful thing to do. And I think he also was looking to have brothers. Um, so we decided to adopt them. We met with them, and um, one of them was probably, he's going to grade four, and he's probably at a grade one level um, English and maybe grade two reading. So as you know, you know, we were at this point in the education system where we don't fail children. So I went on the first day, September the 1st, and I went to Mr. Alley, who was the, the principal at the time. I said, you know, we have a great opportunity here. We have to hold this um, boy back, um, being my son, because, you know, I just couldn't see him, you know, uh, prospering in the school system. So luckily enough, he went and talked to the school board, and we were able to hold him back a year, and uh, he was on five medications, um, and now he is totally prospering. He has a girlfriend. He's uh, 16, turning 17. He's on no medications. Um, he's a lovely boy, um, has a beautiful girlfriend. He was just fishing yesterday with his, I guess, our in-laws. <laughs> At the age of 16, it's hard to call them in-laws, but, uh, but uh, yeah, he, he's just doing extremely well. Great. That's a, a great story. And these boys were all from troubled backgrounds, were they? Um, you know, it's, it's really, a lot of times when it has to do with adoption, it's usually young parents that, that uh, 
you know, they're not used to parenting. They maybe haven't had the best parents themselves, and that was the case here. So there was a father that was in Detroit and a mother in Windsor. Um, so um, I think she's probably, you know, I'm, I'm sure she's learned from that experience, um, but she was young, right. and she was having uh, a number of kids, so. So that's your personal philanthropy, but you've also done stuff in general for youth in Stratford and uh, uh, involving skateboards. Can you tell us about skateboarding? Well, you know, it really started in Toronto when we lived in Parkdale. And um, I worked, I've worked, I guess, for the last 20 years with inner city youth um, in Parkdale. And um, it was interesting when we moved out here, I had a camp for them. So I brought out 25 kids to, to Stratford that had, had no idea what this was because they're used to living in a city where they've never left Toronto in their lives. So you can imagine coming out on a bus and seeing the, the striped line. They had never seen, they didn't know what the passing lanes were. They had no sense of that. So we had a really great week here. We did a lot of interesting things. We went to farms, but of course we basketball was sort of the central core of what we did. But we were at the Knox Church and they learned how to cook. Uh, we did some speeches. We did a lot of different things. So it was quite the experience. And the oars put us up. So 25 kids. I had got cots from the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame. They gave us the cots. So we had this one room that housed 25 kids for the week. And we had uh, one shower. In Knox Church? No, sorry. This was at the oars house. Oh. And then we would, we would run down to the Y every morning. And then we would cook dinners at the Knox Church. But uh, you can imagine um, 25 teenagers um, showering. So it was probably a four and a half hour. Um, that shower was running for four and a half hours every day. And tell us about the skateboard. I was asking about the you built and raised money for a skateboard park. Why did you do that? And tell us what the, what the project was all about. Yeah, so that, the reason why I brought the kids in, in, um, in Parkdale, um, a lot of times youth are, are underrepresented. And they really don't understand how to operate in an, in an adult world. And when I came here in 2013, or I guess it was 2000, oh no, sorry, we came in 2010, 2013, I was, uh, I heard about the skateboard park, the potential of it being here, and the city was looking at it to be out at Romeo um, by the garbage dump. Um, and the kids that were representing themselves, um, you know, going through a, you know, a system of bureaucracy, it can be really frustrating and challenging. And a lot of times kids will just present once and then that's, that's it. So they really need some support and guidance. So I got involved and I, I presented on, in 2013, I presented to the council and I said that, you know, we need to celebrate our children in, in, the, in the core of our city and not push them to the fringes, right? We want to celebrate them. Anyway, I wasn't all the way in. I wasn't a skateboarder, and it was fairly new to me, so we lost the vote. And it was a re regret of mine because I wasn't at the top of my game. Um, and then a year later, um, somebody came to me, a community member, and said, you know, would you like another opportunity? And I said, yes, you know, I w definitely would because it was a regret. And this time I was prepared, um, and we got, we got the vote to put the skate park in. And, right and next to the railway station. Yeah, yeah and I guess there, the challenge was that the community in that area had used, were used to sort of the park being their front yard, right? Because there wasn't much going on in that park. So it was very quiet, um, you know, and that's what they got used to. So can you imagine having that, and then the next thing you have, you know, probably 300 kids every day that are using that park. But 
As I recall, you got some pushback with people not really understanding what skateboarding is and who are the youth that take part in that. And I believe, you know, the police were consulted and all that kind of stuff. So were you surprised at the pushback on that front that they were worried about, oh, vandalism or bad kids or whatever? No, because there's been a history of that. You know, the skateboarding culture started in California and it was, you know, children that were really, you know, pushing against society. And, and there was good reason they were doing that and it started off in the swimming pools. And, uh, and now it's, it's now an Olympic sport. So this is the first time that it was a, a medal sport in the Tokyo yeah. Olympics. So I think that's really addressed a lot of the stigma. So I wasn't surprised because, you know, they've been sort of addressing that for a long time. And me being from sort of a minority group, you know, I'm sort of aware of an that. outsider, yeah, yeah, or even being gay. You know, yeah. the, the, you know the, and being youth. You know, sometimes, you know, you're considered as, you know, like you're a bit of a minority because you got to yeah. communicate, you got to articulate. So yeah, a lot of people saw it as, you know, is this a, a place where the bad kids go to spend their time, and. Um, and that's definitely not the case. And looking back on the last few years, how successful has the skateboard park been? Well, I've got to tell you one story. Like the, probably the, the 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 story that resonates with, with me the most and has been the deepest. I went there one day, and, and this 18 uh, year old came up to me, and he looked me in the eyes, shook my hand, and he said, "You saved my life." Wow. And I said, "Well, what what do you mean?" And he said. Well, I was in meth, I was in drugs. There was nothing in this city for me. And he said, now that we have a skate park, I have a passion. Wow, that's great. So, um, you know, that, that's, that was the biggest gift that I have received from build, building that skate park. Wow. So the, you know, it's been well used. Um, you know, I have to say that every year I go and I knock on, this, on the neighbors of the street that were, some, most of them were opposed. And it's the hardest thing I do every year um, to go knock on the doors. And I, I try to get some feedback and find out, you know, where we're at and what we need to improve upon. And uh, um, the first year I did it, I knocked on this one door, the, the, the largest opponent to the skate park. She didn't open up her door, but she, she opened her door, but not her screen door. And I said, oh, you know, good to see you. And she said, yes, and what are you here for? And I said, well, you know, we've had this year, and I just want to see how it has gone for you. I know that you weren't in support of it. And she said, um, it's gone better than I expected. You're listening to The Stratford Slice with Craig Thompson. Check out our website, thestratfordslice.com, and be sure to subscribe. And now, back to the show. And she went on to say that... Um, but, you know, I don't know what will happen in the future. So I went back to the, the kids that day, and I said, here's a life lesson. You know, that to be a neighbor, you have to be a good neighbor continuously on, uh, ongoing. So maybe we've been okay this year, but we've got to make sure that we continue to be good neighbors. Wow, that's great. I'm going to move on to your uh, light bulb moment, no pun intended, but way back when Thomas Edison... Uh, had his first job in Stratford as a railway telegraph uh, operator, I believe. And uh, you uh, discovered a connection with uh, an old building. Yeah, the, the, um, it was one of those occasions where there was a building for sale um, on, at 46, 46 Ontario. 
And um, I didn't seize the opportunity. And you know how you have those regrets where you say, oh, geez, I should have bought that place, and I didn't buy it. And it was one of those winters that I was here. It was lots of snow, and it was a rather depressing winter. And I, I had depression. You know, I was, I was sad that winter. And so that sort of compounded it because, you know, you're at home and you're not necessarily doing a lot. And then I didn't take that opportunity. Well, the next thing, the year after, it came for sale again. So I bought it. And um, we, the second floor of it, where, which is where Thomas Edison lived, had not been used probably for 50 years. So my job was to be the contractor and to renovate that building. So I engaged an architect um, because I had heard that there was issues when you're buying an old building and renovating it. And I wanted to turn it into an inn with a, a cafe and then candy cakes, which is a bakery is at the back on York Street. So he said, oh, no, there's no problem. You know, you only need one egress, which is an entrance to the second floor. And um, so I bought it with that input. And the next thing, the city approached me and said I would require two egresses or two entrances, one at the back and one at the front. So, of course, my anxiety level, you know, increased quite rapidly <laughs> because, you know, I really needed to have three hotel rooms in there as well to make it profitable venture. Um, so, you know, I was trying to think, well, how do I do this? Because it is a fairly small place. It's a 20-foot frontage on York Street and a 10-foot frontage on, on Ontario Street. So I went home, because the architect didn't have any answers, I went home and uh, Andrew had his math textbook, so I pulled it out and I've, I've always said to him, I said, you know, math is practical, you know, that you're learning math, because, you know, as kids we always say, well, why am I learning this? And I said, you'll, you'll find out later in life that the lessons you learn in math you're going to use in the future. So I pulled out his math book and we figured out the rise and run of the stairs. So we figured out, you know, how, wh how, what the height of the stairs would have to be to get it to, to go in there. And we found out that we had to lower the, the, uh, the second floor by three feet to make this work, according to our rise and run. Plus, we had to sort of contour it within the building. So we took all the joists out, and we lowered the whole floor three feet and put all new joists in and then rebuilt it. So, <laughs> you know, it was, it was a great example to Andrew that... You know, here we are figuring out uh, essentially a math problem that would have affected our profitability as far as a venture. And, you know, we were concerned if it was going to work or not, and it's turned out quite well. So we turned in, turned the three hotel rooms into sort of bit theme rooms. One sort of focused on uh, music, and it has um, um, Justin Bieber on the wall, of course. And then the other one is where Thomas Edison lived. As you said, he was a telegrapher, and he's in the one room. Um, that's sort of focused on his legacy. And then the other room is on the main floor behind the cafe. So it's, it's turned out really well. And I got to say, on the, on the, uh, really what helped us is on July 1st in the Toronto Star, you know, they typically have a celebration in Canada. So they had the Canadian Olympic team, they had the RCMP, and they had a couple of other things that were typically clean, probably maple um, um, products, right? And then they had us. And then each of those different areas were a part of the newspaper. So we were the home section. So then they wrote about our story and how we renovated Edison. So that really helped to getting, you know, the communication and the promotion of, of the in-out to, to the Toronto community. 
So that project wasn't enough for you, and the old Canadian <laughs> Tire Store, which evolved into many different stores over the year, right on the probably the most prominent corner in Stratford across from the, the courthouse where a very well-known children's toy store was for many years. We call it the family and company building. You decided to do this one more time. Well, yeah, and, you know, I wasn't looking to. Um, Paul Veldman, um, you know, thankfully brought me into that 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 project and that opportunity and I had walked by there on numerous occasions and I sort of felt bad because I was um, one of the customers of family and company the toy store and you know it just breaks my heart every time somebody walks down there well, where's family and company the toy store is not there anymore and it's the building sort of you know losing its uh, integrity um, so Paul asked me to get involved so I got involved and I was a contractor of, of the build and then and I was the designer and the decorator and um, we built it. And uh, my background at Ernst & Young, um, you know, I was a sort of an efficiency consultant and performance improvement. So we went from having really nothing on the, the bottom two floors to now we have a Japanese takeout restaurant called Hungry Ninja. Um, Maiko's from Tokyo, Japan. So she has a space there. We have an event space called Amigos. We have a kitchen. Gregor, Gregor Connors Antiques was there b before and it's still there. And then on the first floor, we have Ulysses, who runs uh, the a Cuban lob um, cocktail bar. And then we have a laundro that runs a Mexican restaurant. And then we have five hotel rooms on that main floor. So <laughs> I've really maximized the space. And, uh, and it's been really a family of, of people that are participating because Ulysses is the owner of his, the, the cocktail bar. Alondra owns the, um, the um, taco shop. And then Michael owns her, and her husband owns her. And also a real diversity of people who are <laughs> in it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Cuban, uh, a lot of Brazil. No, uh, Mexico. Mexico. Yeah. And, uh, and Japanese. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because Ulysses was born in Havana, Cuba. And then he went and lived in, in Russia for nine years, moved back to, to Havana, then moved to Ukraine, and then moved back, and then moved here. And during the pandemic was when we were building this. So, you know, it was a, a very stressful time. And he phoned me and he said, you know, Bruce, I've got to meet with you. And I said, oh, you know, he's going to want to get out of the lease because of the pandemic. So I said, you know, what can go worse? You know, I'm, I'm losing a commercial tenant. So I met up with him and he said, you know what? This pandemic has been really good for us. And I said, what do you mean? He said, it's allowed us to be thoughtful. It's allowed us not to be rushed to do something. It's allowed us to take time to reflect on how we want to do it. And I'm very thankful for that. That's great. Mm -hmm. And then congratulations, because got, you got the uh, James Anderson Heritage Award. And uh, was that for the Perth County Inn building, the yes. building you're talking about? Yeah, that was for Perth County Inn. Because yeah. you had to go through a lot of hoops uh, heritage-wise to get that renovation done? Yeah, and I think, you know, that there's sometimes a lot of criticism about what you have to go through with heritage. Um, I'm sort of a proponent of heritage. I, I mean, it, it costs us more as builders um, to renovate properties. But um, it, wasn't, it wasn't a lot of hoops, you know, and, and there were probably pretty um, important um, areas that I had to address. So um, I wasn't, uh, I didn't find it necessarily an arduous uh, process. What is your vision for the future uh, of Stratford? Because you have uh, been uh, vocal in sharing your thoughts on, on where the city should go. And I'm wondering, 
if if those opinions arose out of your interactions with the city and trying to do what you've tried to do with your Edison's Inn and the Perth County and, and the heritage work that you've been doing? Well, I, I guess the first thing is that I've, I've traveled a lot around the world. Um, you know, we were just most recently in, in the Middle East with my children. Prior to that, we were in India um, and, and Pakistan and, and um, over there. And then as on my own, I've traveled a lot and lived in a lot of different places. And I have to say, Craig, that I feel blessed to, to live here. And uh, I absolutely love it here. I think it's a beautiful place. I think it's full of incredible people. And I want to give back to it. And um, I think that we're in a world right now where we we're tend to be focused on self-survival, of protecting our own families and our own interests. And um, I'm sort of taking um, a different approach. I think we need to be more activist. Um, I don't think the city of Stratford can do everything um, to make the city better for us um, because they have a task list and they only have so much time to spend on each area. So for example, with the skate park, I could only, s you know, they, they got it done. You know, do they want to expand on it? No. Do I want to? Yeah, because now the kids have become so much better, right? Mm -hmm. um, so when we look at the city, we have a huge opportunity um, being the, what people call the Cooper site, but before the Cooper site, it was called the Grand Trunk um, lands. And that's 18 acres with a 4.2 acre building. So there's been so much focus on what do we do with the building and very little focus on what, what do we do with the lands. And I think that that's a huge opportunity for us as a community to address the needs that we have around housing, around our, our demographic being somewhat of an aging demographic. We're six to seven years older than the average for, for Ontario. Um, I think it can be built as a, as a neighborhood. And, and I do recognize and acknowledge that there's a lot of people in this community that are just so tired and exhausted. Just, you know, demolish the building, get on with it. And I'm really excited because I think we sort of in a point where we ha can address a lot of our needs through that, through that project. And uh, we're creating an advocacy, or we just started to create a, an advocacy group to really drive action forward on that site so that we can at least see some potentially housing, intensified housing. We can see a new YMCA that is not necessarily just a building, but can have the local community food center, that can have some affordable housing. So lots of really interesting ideas. But your view is really more community involvement in the decisions being made for the city. Is that what you're uh, proposing? Yeah, I think if, if we, if we want a, a wonderful world, I think, I think we have to play our part as individuals. And uh, it's been a challenge for me because there's been times where I've been involved and I felt rather lonely because um, you know, I felt it was me sort of facing the, the issue. Um, and I understand that people are busy. You know, people don't have the time to necessarily get involved. And maybe afraid to speak out. Maybe, uh, maybe that's one of the things. Yeah. And I think that's exactly the time if they are afraid or if they are busy, I think our community needs to be the priority um, for us as individuals. And if we truly want to see the community that, that we all have a vision of, then we all have to participate. And, and it shouldn't be work, it shouldn't be difficult, it should be something, it should be a love of our life to make this place better. Very important theme that has come up over the last couple of years for various reasons is uh, the role we can play in, in the environment and making sure that Stratford is a climate-friendly uh, community. Do you think 
um, that the project that is being envisioned for the Cooper site has some potential as a model for environmental sustainability? 110%. So, uh, you know, I just had breakfast with a, with a friend of mine that's not necessarily a climate change denier, but he believes that, you know, the Ice Age, all these things are, are less impacted by us. And my response to him, don't we have a responsibility regardless to protect the lands that we live on? Um, and I, I truly believe that. So, for example, at Perth County Inn, we had green grass on the corner. I took out the green grass and we planted 650 indigenous plants. First day I did that, um, it might sound a little hokey, but I was watering and somebody walked by and said, well, why are you doing that? And why are you watering each plant? Like, couldn't you hire somebody or couldn't you do a, have you ever heard of the soaker um, hoses, Whitaker? Like, are you an idiot? You're out here for three and a half hours every morning. And I said, you know, this is the best thing I do in a day is feeding the planet. And the first day I was there, I don't know, these two robins came up to my, my feet. And uh, whatever that meant, you know, it just symbolized that we have to be better with, with nature and our environment. And since that time, I just relish seeing the, the butterflies and the bees that are now a part of that. And it's just the first year. So I think that it's an, a real example of what we can do in this community as individuals. But we can also, as you're saying with the Cooper site, we can do something as a community and I sort of see where there's, there's some toxic land. It's not as bad as what we thought it was, but on the east, on the west side, um, where the, the fuel came in to power the plant, that's, that's quite toxic, um, which is either an opportunity to put a parking um, structure or an opportunity to build a, a, a park, an inner city park that maybe will remediate the soil naturally and bring it back. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very much for um, treating our planet better. What is your philosophy in all the things that are happening at the moment? We seem to be at a turning point in, in society. You know, we've got uh, an increasing amount of conflict. We've got the climate change uh, situation coming upon us. And then all of these um, stories coming out about abuse and neglect and how we've treated people of all uh, cultures, uh, you know, indigenous cultures and everything. What lessons can we draw from that, and why do you think it's happening all at the same time? Well, it's overwhelming. You know, I'm tired. I'm frustrated. Um, you know, I have a difficult time watching the news. So I think I'm like everybody else. To me, what it means is that we need to spend time with our family and our family members, because those are the people that are going to be driving the future of this planet. And my concern um, is that we're not spending a, enough time with our, our children and um, to, to really foster um, their understanding of the world and passing on strong lessons. Um, so I think it starts with the family. I think we have to b do a better job with our youth, and that's part of the reason why I spend so much time with the youth is because I, I don't think we spend enough time, and they're so incredibly important. And as you said, it's a very transformative time. So I often turn to youth for answers. Whereas I think when I worked at the bank, I felt like I had to be 30 before I could say something in a board meeting or in a, you know, a, a, an important meeting because I wasn't worthy of saying anything. Now, I look to young people. You know, they're, they're so involved in culture. They're so involved in technology. They're so involved in so many different areas. I think we have to start treating them Obviously, there's a maturity level, but I think we have to start treating them as uh, bring them to the table a little bit more um, because they are ultimately the future. So 
to answer your question, yeah, it's a difficult time, but it's also an exciting time um, because it's it's a time where I think we need people to rise up, um, people that truly believe in, in, in this, the future and that have some say in where we go as a community. And that's why I think Stratford can be become so incredible because I think we, we want to, I'd like to see other leaders, like people consider me the leader of the skate, I'd like to see other leaders that say um, that whatever, if let's say it's art, that there's a leader of the art within our community rather than relying on the city to do art, Let's rely on people that, that galvanize others to say, hey, let's do something within our, our city with respect to art, or if it's with respect to education, or whatever your passion is, let's hear from you, but go beyond your family and contribute to the community. Well, Bruce, that's a great thought to wrap this up on. Thank you so much for uh, coming and uh, chatting uh, with me today on the Stratford Slice. Well, it's been a pleasure, Craig, and I really appreciate all your contributions to, to Stratford as well. Thanks, Bruce. My guest today has been Bruce Whitaker. You've been listening to The Stratford Slice with Craig Thompson. For more episodes, check out our website, thestratfordslice.com, and be sure to subscribe. The Stratford Slice is produced by Ballinran Entertainment, Southwestern Ontario's number one digital media studio. If you have a great story to tell and want to be on the podcast, please reach out to us through our website, thestratfordslice.com.